if you go into a particular market, you know, a particular city has, let's say, 10,000 students at that particular university. Maybe it's 10 to 12,000 students, right? And then you look at how much actual housing stock is in that particular area. And it might only be enough beds or housing for, let's say, four to 5,000 students, right? So you're under 50% in terms of a ratio, meaning beds to student population in the area. Well, that suggests that rents are going to be strong. That suggests that if you do buy a property there, you will likely be able to lease it up. And that also suggests that you could probably forecast mild to strong rent growth. You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. All right, welcome back to the show, Ice Cream with Investors. I'm your host, Matt Four, and today's guest is Justin Smith. Justin is the founder of Relay Equity Enterprise, a private equity real estate that requires multifamily real estate in the Southeast and the Midwest. He is also currently a general partner on 360 housing units in Des Moines, Iowa. I'm super excited to have Justin on the show, though, because he also advises private clients on developments in Texas, California, and Ohio. Justin, welcome to the show. Hello, 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 Matt. How are you doing, sir? I am fantastic. How are you? I'm having a great day. I'm enjoying the week. It's a little warm where I am, and it's always a good day to hang out. Good. Well, we like to start with the difficult questions here. Uh What's your favorite ice cream? My favorite ice cream is actually Rocky Road. Yes. It's one of those flavors that it's not underneath growing up. My favorite was like chocolate, chocolate, everything. But then I discovered Rocky Road and it's like, oh, you can get a little splash of candy. You can have a little marshmallow and then some vendors might put a little nut in it or something like that. So, hey, that's what I'm all about. I like that. I like that little splash of the basics, the foundation, plus a little extra pizzazz thrown in there for good measure. I love it. I love it. Were you a cone or a bowl guy? I like the sugar cone. The bowl is like, eh, when you get older, it's like, ah, you know, you're eating like your parents. You get a bowl. But when you're young, like you and I, you go for the cone. There's nothing better than walking in an ice cream shop and smelling a good, fresh sugar cone, too. Oh, man, that's the best. That's the best. I did a project in that Boise, Idaho, and they had a little place that did their own cones. It was kind of right downtown. And man, I'll tell you this, though. The, the cone was so good, I used to get just basic chocolate. Yeah. Yeah, enjoy that. All right. Well, tell our listeners, what's the scoop? What do you do today? What I do today is I sit around wondering whether it is advantageous and better to build real estate or to buy it. Because we could do both, right? There are different markets, there's different places, but the question that comes to my mind is build versus buy and why. And so that's where I like to focus my energy and specifically kind of diving down into that building and buying is really uh, student housing. Uh, Student housing is one of those specialty asset classes that most folks either don't know about or haven't really gotten to it. And I like to really go there and build properties, probably built over 1,500 units of student housing across four different states. I've seen it in different, whether you're small, 190 units, or whether you're large, 599 units. That's where I really like to play. That's where I really like to get active and go ground up a new construction. But they find an opportunity in a particular market that might be 50 units, which might equate to, let's say, 72 beds, which is the correlation to the student housing world. I might take a look at that as well. 
I want to get into student housing, but before we do, you mentioned build versus buy. What are some of the determining factors on whether you would build versus buy in a particular market? Well, I think in a particular market, there's an underlying risk versus reward factor. But here's one thing. If the market is remote or rural and the resources and those type of folks, contracts and what have you can't get to that market, then construction could be difficult. And that's also a good thing from a buying perspective, because the pricing there is pretty solid. It's entrenched, right? You don't see a whole lot of cranes. You don't see a whole lot of dilution of the housing stock. So you pretty much know, hey, okay, if I buy something, there may not be a lot of competition and my rents can be solidly and conservatively grown. That's the type of market. So a rural market that may be far away from kind of the city centers and that type of thing, I'd probably go with an acquisition strategy. And if it's another type of market that may be closer to a city, you know, I might want to go with a build strategy because the resources might be there. The capital might be there. The investment community might also be more interested in investing in that particular project. And the cost of that capital, which is very important, could also be more economically feasible for the project. Are there any metrics that you look at, maybe permits or vacancies or anything like that that you look at in the market? Yeah. One factor to look at is how many student to bed ratio. Because if you go into a particular market, you know, a particular city has, let's say, 10,000 students at that particular university. Maybe it's 10 to 12,000 students, right? And then you look at how much actual housing stock is in that particular area. And it might only be enough beds or housing for, let's say, four to 5,000 students, right? So you're under 50% in terms of a ratio, meaning beds to student population in the area. Well, that suggests that rents are going to be strong. That suggests that if you do buy a property there, you will likely be able to lease it up. And that also suggests that you could probably forecast mild to strong rent growth, right? So those are some factors. And then the other thing is kind of look at the news. Like you can just kind of look at the local news for that particular area and see, okay, is there a housing crisis? You know, are students six, seven to a house? Are there situations where families are saying, hey, well, we got to move further out because all these students are all over the place? Those are different factors that you can kind of take a look at in the market and really understand whether or not there is a housing uh, shortage for students. You've used this term beds versus bedrooms. Are they interchangeable or what separates a bed versus a bedroom in student housing? Here's the difference. Let's say I had a apartment with three units. I could probably in a regular market, you know, in your multifamily market, you could just rent that three bedroom apartment out. Let's just say it was you rented out for, I don't know, $1,200 in a student housing environment you can rent out each one of the bedrooms. So let's say you rented out her bed, that three bedroom at $500 a piece to three students. So at that point, you're getting $1,500 rent versus the $1,200 if you just rent it as one unit. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I've heard of people doing this in like very dense, low housing supply markets, such as Portland, Seattle, San Francisco, and things like that. I think it's called co-oping in the multifamily space, if I'm not mistaken. But is that one of the reasons why you're excited about student housing is because the ability to charge per bedroom and higher returns or what excites you about student housing? You know, what excites me about student housing is, is a couple of things. A, I think it's just a demographic group that's fun. 
I think it's a demographic group that really gets excited and about different environments. I can connect with that younger group better, I feel. Also, by the bed is something that definitely works to your advantage, work to your favor. Now, also keep in mind that it may only be a 10-month lease because students all vacate the premises in the summer. So, so you have those type of market conditions you have to deal with. But I do like that better. I think that you can also add, depending on the size of your building, you can add different services, add different student resources. There are certain things in the community that you can leverage that might benefit your building. Maybe it's like whether it's parks, whether it's bus lines, whether it is ad hoc services like the scooters and the renter bikes and the train, all those different other services, but to really give the students a sort of suite of services, if you will, and wrap it around your housing. So I think all of those things can be pluses and benefits for your students. Is that what you're noticing kind of separates properties on campus these days? Are those amenities? So I've heard of things like that, where in multifamily, we would offer better Wi-Fi, a place to work, co-working, free coffee, things like that, just to attract different type of tenant base. Is that what you're seeing attract students these days is really the amenities of a project? Oh, for sure, man. I mean, you should look at some of the stuff that they're building in places like Boise, Minnesota, Washington, and that's Washington State. I mean, the amenities are great, like swimming pools fitness centers, study lounges, conference rooms, game rooms. Man, it just goes on and on. Like all of these different ancillary things that you can build in rooftop decks, lower level decks, there's parking. There's a lot of different things that you can build in if you get in early and if you design the space early sort of with that student resident in mind. Yeah. My nephew just went to North Dakota State. He's a freshman there. And one of the reasons why he went there is because he went on campus and they have a student lazy river. So he's he's (laughs) spending all that kind of money. And the one thing he loves about the university is the fact that it has a lazy river. It has a lazy river. And you're like, okay, well, I'm going there because I like a lazy river. It's like, well, what about the biology department? No, it's it's okay. I'm okay. You know, (laughs) things are a little different than when I was in school, I guess. Exactly. And that's the other thing is uh, student housing is also sort of moving to a sweet base. Like some of you listeners might recall the days when you had to get your robe and your soap tray and all that and kind of troggle down the hallway to the 12 person bathroom, right? Nowadays, you got these suites where you got your own bathroom. You have what's known in the student housing world as bed bath parity, meaning every bed has its own bathrooms. Wow. That's what distinguishing feature you start to see in some of the newer construction is a three bedroom apartment or unit might also have three bathrooms so that each student can have their own bathroom, right? That's a major selling feature. And then, yes, you share the kitchen space, but you want to go to your room and eat your oatmeal and broccoli by yourself, you can go to your room and do that and not come out and not be bothered by your neighbors and so on or by your roommates and so on. So that's awesome. I lived in a place in college that had three toilets, only one of them worked at a given time. So I'm very familiar with the trotting down the hallway to the bathroom in your robe and soap dish. <laughs> exactly. Those are the old days of the early 2000s, you yeah, know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, I want to ask you, anytime we're talking about student housing, the first thing that goes to my mind is all the debauchery that I got into when I was a student at the University of Tennessee. How do you protect yourself from potential damages that a student's going to do to a property or the wear and tear maintenance that happens on a given student housing? Buy industrial style furniture. Your asset and property management team really has to be active, right? And kind of letting people know, hey, look, this is your space. We all live here. Let's appreciate the space. It is a community. 
So with education, right? That's one key part of it. Another key part of it is by enforcement and say, okay, well, if we find that you're damaging your chairs or this and that, you know, hey, there's a cost associated with that. So kind of instituting the code enforcement or some type of payment enforcement and, and students kind of get the message. I mean, let's say, you know, everyone wants to lose their key all the time. Okay, well, lose your key once. Yeah, we'll help you out. Lose your key twice. There may be a $5 charge for you to get your key, right? Lose your bedroom furniture. All right, there's going to be a $20 charge for you to get your bed back because you wanted to sleep out on the roof or whatever with your buddies and ice surf down the wall. I mean, just goofy things, right? So really you have to kind of teach them through education, through a little enforcement. And then if those two things don't work, then you got to go with the good old tried and true. Hey, we're going to back charge you for X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Do you make parents co-sign on the lease? Yeah, that's another thing that's a positive. Typically, you have that third parent that signed on the lease as well. So, hey, students can't get too unruly because, you know, hey, mom and dad is kind of footing, you know, ultimately in the end might be footing the bill. So that's a positive thing because as in the multifamily world, it's like, hey, your renter or your tenant is essentially signing that lease done deal. But now you kind of have this silent third partner that is supporting the revenue for that particular space. Also, at the same time, there's a dual-edged sword to that because that parent, mom and dad, might also be a little bit more proactive towards speaking out about issues or coming to visit or physical challenges with the space and all these different things. So your property manager phone might be ringing saying, hey, well, my child, their refrigerator is not working. Get down and go fix it. You might also have that extra tenant that will call and voice complaints. They might go full Karen on them. Yeah, man, fully. You're just like, oh my God, my daughter's room is just too cold or they don't like their roommate. The parent's calling and so you have to deal with those things too. Yeah. Over the past 50 years, we've seen an explosion of college population and enrollment in colleges. And I have a belief that that probably is going to change over the next 20 years. I don't think you're going to see all these little smaller colleges. I don't think students will need to go to college to show that they have proof of work. I think as they come through high school, they're going to do things like start a company, develop software and show that they have these skills to their former employee, their future employer versus maybe going to college. I don't know if you could talk us through maybe that concern or how you view that as an objection to potentially investing in student housing. I think that what it sort of speaks to is these smaller universities that might not have been able to turn on the dime and address sort of the pandemic and those needs to really get out there electronically and get out there remotely and address their student body. I feel like those universities might still have a challenge. Because they're small. If the student body does pull away, then then naturally that might affect the housing in that particular area. But it's also interesting that in some respects, it also follows a sort of red state, blue state dynamic. Not trying to get political or anything, but that's just the way of the U.S. in terms of policy around the whole pandemic. And it wasn't consistent across the board. So a smaller college in, say, in one of your Midwestern states might have just fared okay. Versus maybe one, another school on the North Atlantic sort of starboard, they might have had some challenges with people moving in on the West Coast, right? Might have had some challenges because of the states and their different policies. So to answer your question, it's, it's state specific. So really look at the states and how those universities have fared in general, and then look at the population of that particular university and what policies they might have towards uh, that. Because truthfully, some universities actually, their enrollment increased across the Midwest. You know, enrollment was increasing and pulling away from some of the other states. 
So it's really a case study of specific and general locations to really observe. Yeah. So that was going to be my next question is, do you focus on specific universities for your developments? For instance, University of Texas is not going out of business, right? To $6 billion enrollment, whatever it is, because they own all that oil land. Do you focus your developments on those bigger schools or do you look for pockets of opportunity? Like, Just talk us through how you evaluate a market, I guess. So it really goes back, there's really about pockets of opportunity. Where do you have a supportive economy, a growing university, a university that has some desire through their campus master plan or through their educational master plan to grow their enrollment? There are social economic factors which might support that particular university. And then the lack, like I mentioned earlier, the lack of student housing versus their own student body, right? And one of the universities that we're looking at, or actually a group of universities that we're looking at is is the HBCU, which is the historically Black colleges and universities right here in America. You know, they're starving for housing. So we're looking at a number of those universities and working with them to see what we can do about bringing student housing to their doorstep because they want to grow. They want to educate their students. They also want their students to live on campus or off campus or near campus because it fits into their mission. It fits into their model of being not only a educational institution, but a culturally sound and supporting institution as well. So those are some of the factors that if you find that, that we look at. So when you layer all those different things and they don't have housing, then that's a great location to invest. That's a great location for us to go build, partner with the university and so on. What do you think Dion's going to do to the HBCUs? I feel like he's going to bring so much untapped money and fundraising to all HBCUs that it's by far, I'm pro Dion. Right. And that's already happened. So I think the notoriety, the historical significance, the football squads, the bands, the educational institutions are far greater than a lot of other institutions. Students, their success ratios are great. Many of their students go on to higher education, whether it's master's or PhDs. They're some of the best institutions I think the U.S. has to offer, and I would rival them and put them up against many other institutions. Yeah, we got a great one in my backyard here in Nashville, Tennessee State. When you go look at like some of the reading through some of the history and some of the talent that's passed through there, it's incredible. It is. And I think that they need their due. Many of them are in areas where they've had their economic challenges with institutional capital pouring into the university, right? And so persons like Dion and others can kind of raise that awareness, right? Of, hey, here's a student base, here's a body of students that needs as much institutional awareness and educational awareness as your UC Berkeley's, as your Washington's, as your Harvard's, as your Yale's, as your Cornell's, as your University of Texas, so on. Agreed. Before we kind of transition here, are there any publications or websites that you follow that give you some of these metrics that we talked about, enrollment increases, student-to-bed ratios, and all that sort of stuff? A lot of it's metric-driven, but I do follow a couple of larger organizations for sort of the general uh, development arena in the U.S., and it's called ULI, Urban Land Institute is one organization. There's a couple other, like student, I think it's called Student Housing News multi-housing news and those type of publications give you some indication of sort of what's happening in those type of spaces, but also looking at, you know, very targeted universities. 
just kind of looking at different set of data points. And I can say, okay, all right, here's the top 25 universities that I think are right for student housing. I think have a need there. So let's see if we can find some opportunities there. Awesome. I want to switch us now into our last round. We're calling this the five toppings. Our first one is, what is your favorite book or what is a book you've read recently that's given you a paradigm shift? One of the books that I read previously was by uh, Reginald F. Lewis. I think the title was White Guys Have All the Fun. And it was an African-American man who came from Baltimore, went to school in Virginia, also went on to Harvard, was a very successful Black man in his in the 80s, through the 80s and 90s and so on to his passing in 93. But his story of perseverance, his story of one of the first Black, successful, most wealthiest men in this country, and that story of persistence, that story of, hey, you get out there and achieve, you get out there and follow your passions, follow your dream, really resonated with me many years ago. So that's a book that I really enjoy. And that's called Why Guys Have All the Fun? It's called White Guys Have All the Fun. Gotcha. We'll link that in the show notes there. Our second one is, I believe that the person you become 10 years from now is directly correlated to the habits that you have and the things Mm -hmm. that you do every day. What are some of the habits that you have every day? Some of the habits I have now is every day go after my SEO. What probably comes to mind for you is search engine optimization. So SEO, but I take it a little bit different. And I choose to look for my sun energy and oxygen look for that natural inspiration that gets me up and gets me going. I was born in May, so I'm a sun child. I'm invigorated by that. And that gives me energy. And just knowing that I have that oxygen right behind me, and that in itself is a blessing. So how do I sort of, if that's the core of what I'm looking for, then how do I do that every day, get up and try to, A, be thankful. Immediately be thankful. Today was a blessing. Tomorrow's not promised. And today is your chance to really wake up and do that next thing. Also get some exercise in there and try to constantly, you know, have your body in motion. Object in motion stays in motion. Object at rest tends to stay at rest, right? I think that's from one of my physics classes. But nevertheless, kind of embodying all that, having that sun energy oxygen kind of rushing into your mind, being thankful, getting that exercise, getting out there, getting your juices flowing. That's what I try to do every morning. I love it. And in my mind immediately went to search optimis- optimization. <laughs> no, so you caught me on my heels there. I'm like, yeah, he checks his Google stats every day. <laughs> Our third one is, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? The best piece of advice I received was one word, engage. Many times, and it's probably worse now than before, but many of us try to multitask. And if we realize, and here's a hint, you're not really good at multitasking it's actually not a good thing, right? Or we try to do two things at once. So they try to get you to watch TV, scan a QR code and watch the game and then do something on your phone all at the same time. It's like, no, I just want to watch the game, right? But engage. And what I mean by that, be there when you are there. And so that was that piece of advice and how that's, I distilled that down to one word, engage, right? Because you miss so much by not engaging. You miss so much whether it's a conversation with a long lost friend or somebody at lunch, right? Put your phone down, get rid of the distractions, right? Engage in that person. That might be a friend that might need your ear. That might be a friend or coworker or somebody or vice versa that you may want to have a real conversation with. Not a swipe left, not a swipe right, not a comment, not a thumbs up, but a real conversation. So that gets back to engaging, engaging with people, engaging with your surroundings. 
Sometimes you need to get out of the building, not out of a, a Zoom meeting or out of a call and just walk around, engage with yourself and be there when you're there. Yeah, our listeners will know. I used to think I was a really good multitasker. And the older I get, the harder it becomes. And not only that, but the cognition switch from one task to another, it takes you a while to reset. And you might not think that checking that text message or that like post or whatever like that is that big of a deal. But I promise it has a mental drag on you that you might not be aware of. It does. You still have to shift your thinking. And sometimes you lose you lose your thought processes around something. You may need to actually focus on something and set up a task or set up a next step or just kind of process a piece of information. And if you all of a sudden jump off into somebody's world and they're at some event doing something and now they got your mind wandering into this, where is that one thing that was in front of you that you needed to take care of? Yeah. Our fourth one is, what's the thing that you're most proud of in your life? The thing I'm most proud of is being a father. I'm the father of two beautiful twins that my wife and I brought into this world. And that's just something I probably should have done a whole lot sooner, but I'm very proud of it and uh, really enjoy being able to impart on them many life's lessons, seeing them grow, seeing them do the different things that they're doing in their life. That's really exciting to me. Are they identical or fraternal? They are fraternal. Yeah, I'm a fraternal twin as well. Did they get along? They do get along sometimes, you know, that's, <laughs> that's one of those things, you know, they, here's a secret. They don't want to be called twins. Yeah. So, <laughs> but they're definitely uh, doing well. They're definitely working with each other. Some days, some days not, but it's a work in progress. How old are they? They're 18. All right. Well, I am going to tell you, they probably realized this around that age, but it took me until I was about 22, 23 to realize, holy smokes, someone has been a part of my life every second that I've been alive because (laughs) beyond your parents, right? Right. It's just kind of cool. Like we were fraternal, so we didn't get along. He chose one path. I chose the opposite just to be different more than anything. But as we've grown older, we've become closer together. And it is just kind of cool to look back at the shared experiences that you have with another person that lived in the same house as you. So yeah, they're not yet at the look backstage. They're just kind of looking around, you know, throwing popcorn at each other sometimes, but definitely good. I'm definitely proud of them. And it actually taught me more about myself than anything and how I deal with them and how I work with them. So that's been very, uh, very telling and very interesting as an experience. Well, our last one is if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why? Well, I wouldn't want to sit down with any dead people for sure. (laughs) You could have their ice cream though. Yeah, I could have their ice cream. You know, that's kind of a... But I would say President Obama, because he was such a dynamic president. You can say whatever folks want to say, you know, one aisle or the other, whatever the case might be. But he was definitely a first, a first in America and someone that broke barriers in many respects. And I'd like to understand his perspective on that, you know, and kind of have that conversation about that, because, you know, he's walked in places that no other African-American male or female has, right? And has a particular experience that would be good to hear. Yeah. Well, Justin, fantastic conversation. If our listeners wanted to reach out and learn more about you or the things that you're doing, where's the best place we could point them? Well, a couple of places. I do have a website, Real Equity, R-E-L Equity, RealEquity.com is my website. I'm also active on LinkedIn as well as Instagram. I like to put out different messages for those that are interested in the development, construction, and development construction space. And I do these every Tuesday. I do a construction tip Tuesday. 
So you might find that out on social media. I've been putting that on Instagram and putting that on LinkedIn, just different tips about different things that I've learned on construction sites or during pre-development. And it might relate to anything, just anything like, hey, we might talk about windows one day. We might talk about HVAC systems. We might talk about paint color. We might talk about selecting finishes, right? I might talk about carpet or FF&E or whatever the case might be. So every Tuesday, I do a little fun little video and just say, hey, you know, here's a construction tip. If you're doing this particular thing on your project, here's something to take into consideration. And that's it. No sale, no this, no that, no book, CDs, tapes, none of that type of stuff. And nothing against that. But hey, I just like to share my knowledge. Love it. Well, we will link all of that in the show notes. And then Justin, thanks for being on the show. All righty. Well, I appreciate you having me, Matt. And have a good afternoon. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.